You know this guy's name. We've been talking about him already this morning, uh, Doubting Thomas, not to be confused with Worshiping Thomas, um, or Basketball Playing Thomas, or whatever, but um, I've always kind of felt sorry for him kind of get, getting that name, because he actually pretty quickly in this story becomes Believing Thomas, uh, just a couple of verses later, later. And, uh, and he actually becomes that with one of the most powerful and profound confessions of faith recorded in the whole New Testament. He says, my, says, my Lord and my God. Well, I found out that this unfair labeling um, actually has been picked up by a, the people at fakeposters.com. You've seen fake posters. This one. Doubt for one little minute and they never let you forget it. <laughs> it was also picked up by this cartoonist. You might not be able to read this very well, but it says, all I'm saying is we don't call Peter denying Peter or Mark ran away naked Mark. So why should I be saddled with this title? And the other guy goes, I see your point, Thomas, but really it's time to move on. <laughs> and it is time to move on. <laughs> time to get serious and move on not only to the story, but to the deeper things that we always seem to find John doing with these familiar stories, that John is doing something deeper. There's something that fits into the bigger picture. They always fit into the bigger themes of Jesus' identity, Jesus' deity. They also fit into, also, they seem to fit into the bigger Bigger pictures of, of uh, stories of theme of faith and of, of belief. Actually, in this chapter, more than in any other. In fact, this is the chapter where it all comes together. I was sort of sitting in awe before this morning and going, wow, this is a pretty crummy sermon in light of how incredible this passage is. So pray for me. It's been fun working with this, but it's a challenge because this is such a key passage. Last week we were in verses 1 through 23, which was the story of the resurrection. John's version of the resurrection with this tender moment, this dynamic meeting of Jesus with Mary Magdalene, who sees and and believes, who John, who looks in the tomb, who sees and believes. And then Jesus goes to the upper room that night and all of the disciples believe as they receive his spirit. There's that at the beginning of this passage. And at the very end, did you hear that? We finally got to it. After a year and a half, we finally got to 23. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 are theme verses. These are written. But what's right in, what connects the power of the resurrection and the purpose of the book? DT, Doubting Thomas. Right there in the middle, hooking these two parts together, making this a significant part of the scriptures. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And what's in between here is this doubting Thomas, believing Thomas, connecting the parts, all in Thomas. Thomas, who is overwhelmed by the proof of the resurrection, that embraces faith in Jesus, the Son of God, the giver of life. Thomas here is not a doubter. He's a chooser. He chooses to believe. And these verses work powerfully to call us to believe as well. So this is what we look at this morning. The 20th chapter becomes John's great gospel conclusion. John's great gospel conclusion, not only as all of the evidence climaxes in the resurrection, but also as the choice to believe in Jesus is presented to Thomas and presented to us. In a sense, John is saying it's time for this living faith in the life of the Son of God. So we're going to look at the issue of faith here. First of all, faith for Thomas. Secondly, faith for us. And then thirdly, what this might encourage us in terms of faith for the world. 
We've met Thomas a couple times already in John's Gospel back in chapter 11 when they were going to head to Jerusalem because Lazarus had died and Jerusalem was a scary place. They knew it would be dangerous to go back to Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, we're going. And Thomas says, let us go with him also and die. (laughs) So Thomas is loyal and pessimistic. He says, let's go. We're going to go to Jerusalem too. We'll probably all get killed, but we're going to go with Jesus. And then in chapter 14, he's a little bit confused. Jesus says, says um, uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you know the way to go, don't you? And Thomas goes, Jesus, we have no idea where to go. We don't know the way. And Jesus answers then with one of the great I am's. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. That's where we've met Thomas before. A loyal pessimist, a questioner, and here, at least for a moment, a demanding skeptic. We don't know why Thomas was not in the upper room on Easter evening a week before. It's been suggested that he'd handled his grief by withdrawing and and wanting to be alone rather than pulling together as the other disciples did to deal with their grief. We don't know if that's true, but it's a good suggestion. But Thomas had heard things during that week. Maybe he realized that he needed community, and by verse 25, he is with the disciples again. It says they're all excited while he is all kind of hard-nosed and pretty demanding. They say, we've seen the Lord, and Thomas says... I don't believe it. I demand evidence unless I see the marks in his hands and put my hand in his side. I will not believe. I will not believe. Before we get down on old Tidy Thomas, though, remember that this gospel uh, has been all about evidence all along. John has been building a case for 20 chapters about evidence that points to Jesus as Messiah. Thomas really here just wanted to see what the other disciples had seen. They'd all seen it the week before. He just wanted to see and experience what they had seen. He is simply refusing to believe until his evidence matches theirs. He's simply refusing to believe until his experience lines up with the other disciples. And a week after the resurrection, he has his chance. And he sees Jesus, Jesus who is the evidence. Again in verse 19, Jesus seems to miraculously appear in the room. It says the doors were locked. It said that before. It says it here. The doors were locked and Jesus sort of appears. And again, he says, peace be with you, which is a a typical greeting, but means so much more. Jesus knows all about Thomas's question, apparently, because there's no dialogue here. He simply presents himself. He says, hey, Thomas, put your fingers here. Put your hand here. And then the verse that we get Thomas's name from, stop doubting and believe. More, more literally, what Jesus says here in the verb forms in the original language mean more closely, do not become unbelieving, but believing. The word for doubting and belief are the same word, same verb root, or same, same root word. Do not become unbelieving, but believing. And immediately it seems that Thomas does. It isn't even reported that he takes Jesus' up on the offer. Jesus says, put your hand here, and Thomas instantly says, my Lord and my God. Thomas believes and he utters this confession of faith. My Lord and my God. Now this wasn't astonishment like, oh my gosh! This wasn't, a, this wasn't an OMG in front of Jesus. This was a confession of faith. It's a confession of faith. Oh my Lord and my God. He believes, he has faith, and it is so much more than just believing that Jesus rose. That's pretty clear. It's much more than that. I think when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he believes everything that Jesus has been teaching and revealing about himself. He believes everything that Jesus has been teaching and revealing. He believes everything about the full deity of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He is believing that he is Lord and God. But there's even more than that. He believes that he's Lord and God, but even more, he says it's a belief in Jesus. 
It's a personal faith and commitment to Jesus and with Jesus. My Lord and my God. Not just the Messiah, but my Lord and my God. Here in the middle of chapter 20, between the resurrection and this powerful purpose statement of John, is Thomas pulling it all together. I get it. I get all of the evidence. And I get this personal connection that I put my faith in him, my trust in him, and I live for him, my Lord and my God. We could call him connecting Thomas, couldn't we? (laughs) Believing Thomas, no longer doubting. Here is faith for Thomas. But as Jesus responds now to Thomas and to his confession of faith, we find that there is faith for us as well. Verse 29 has raised questions over the years. What does Jesus mean when he says, because you have seen me, you have believed? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, for Thomas, seeing was believing, but Jesus pushes beyond that and says, there are those who will not see and believe as well. Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Does that mean that Thomas wasn't blessed? Is he disparaging Thomas's faith? Is it, is it is a, a lesser form of faith just because they believed with seeing and there's a, a, a grander level of faith because of not seeing? I don't really think that that's what Jesus is saying. I think all Jesus is doing here is stating a fact. Thomas and this current group of disciples, in a sense, they have had the privilege of seeing Jesus. They've had the privilege of inter- interacting and relating to the risen Jesus present in their midst. But it's not going to last long. <laughs> We know that he's going to ascend and they will not have that physical presence anymore. At this point when he says that, the number of people who've seen him and believe is much bigger than those who have not seen and believe. But quickly, that will change. We've we've passed up that original number by millions and millions and millions of those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's what John is doing here. What Jesus is doing is he quotes this from Jesus. He's pointing forward to more. He's pointing forward to millions more like us who are blessed. Who are blessed because we have not seen with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith and with the evidence that we've seen and changed lives that we've seen, we have made that choice to believe. I think I've, in the past I've always interpreted this as, as more blessed, but that's not necessarily what he's saying. He's just looking forward to faith and life for the church. Looking forward to faith and life for the church and for the world and for us. Gary Burge says about this, when Jesus said this, Jesus had us in mind. Jesus had us in mind. We saw that back in chapter 17. Remember when he prayed for the disciples? And he also says, I pray for you, but I also pray for those who will believe through you. Jesus had us in mind there, and he has us in mind here. And with that then, after this, uh, after he says this about the blessing of those who have not seen and believe. Then we move to this great purpose statement of the gospel. We'll read it again. <laughs> Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is telling us that he is well aware of a rich source of, of stories, a rich source of traditions, of experiences that he and his fellow disciples have had with Jesus. He's telling you that there is a bunch of stuff out there. We could just go on for days, he says. But what John has done here is he has carefully edited to suit his needs. Not his personal needs, 
but his literary needs, and even more than that, his spirit-driven intent. He's carefully edited from those experiences to point to the person of Christ and to point to faith and to point to believe, leading readers to make the choice to believe. Leading the readers of this gospel in those days and today to make the choice to believe, choosing to believe. It's really what this gospel, it's really what this chapter is all about. Peter and John in the early part of the chapter have have the evidence of the empty tomb. They run to the tomb. They see it empty. They see the grave clothes. And John believes, and Peter does too, but John just makes a note of himself. Mary Magdalene has a personal encounter with the risen Lord, and, and she believes. A little bit later in the upper room, the apostles see Jesus, hear Jesus, experience him, touch him, feel him, and receive the fullness of his very spirit that he gives them then, and they believe. And then it comes to Thomas, skeptical for a moment, and then this profound statement of faith. In the face of all the evidence, he makes the choice, my Lord and my God, the choice to accept the evidence and then embrace full faith in Jesus. For 20 chapters, John has been building a case leading to choice, to this choice. In those chapters, we've seen other choices. We've seen the great divide between those who follow and believe and those who found Jesus' claims outrageous. Those who found Jesus' claims outrageous and therefore sabotage and reject and even attack him. Weighing the evidence and making a choice, we see both sides, the divide, up till chapter 20. But here is the choice for faith in Jesus Christ. To not just believe that he lived, but to believe in him. I was a 16-year-old sophomore in high school at a weekend retreat at a camp in the Santa Cruz Mountains in March of 1968. I'd grown up a churchy kid, so I know all the churchy answers, and I believed in God. I believed that there was a God in Jesus, but the evidence of lives around me that were really different spoke to me. I was hearing things about a personal relationship with Jesus that I'd never heard in the church that I grew up in. As I say, either they didn't talk about it or wasn't listening that day. Likely that too. But this talk of a personal relationship and the change it was making in the people around me impressed me. It was evidence to me. It was evidence that the story of Jesus' deity was true. And then I heard a speaker who spoke of Jesus' life. He spoke of his extreme sacrifice, of his deep love for me. And all this in the moving of the Spirit led me to choose that night. I made a choice that night. I chose to believe in Jesus, not just believe about him. I chose to receive his gift of forgiveness and to begin a new life. I began a relationship with him, I believe, that night, a relationship that had been building. It had information before that. There was some faith before that, but that was the night of a choice to embrace it fully. And I was blessed, even though I had never seen Jesus with my eyes. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. I saw him through eyes of faith, and I chose What about faith? What is, what is faith? What is, what is the nature of faith? Maybe it's here, here it's good to clarify a little bit. What is the difference here between faith and belief? Actually, in the Greek language in which this was written in, none, really. In the original Greek, the, to be, believe is the verb form of faith. We don't have a verb form of faithing. But that's a little bit what it is. Believing and faith. Having faith putting faith in. 
But the strength of the word is not just, I believe that. It's not just a blind faith, but it's a faith in. And a faith in what? A faith in the evidence. It's a faith in the true facts that we read and accept. A faith in Jesus. But that raises the question then, is is belief determined by the content of what we accept? Is our faith in Christ determined by how much we understand Is our belief something that's verifiable through how we can articulate the truth about Jesus? It's possibly very articulate about the content of Christian faith and not know Jesus, isn't it? Is faith determined by the content of our faith or is it a much more inner spiritual thing that we can't nail down and yet that we know that it's happening? Is it a much more subjective thing or is it based on this objective evidence? I think John's playing with us a little bit here because it's all true. Yes, the content and and the belief is important. The evidence is there. But God does a mighty work and it does become this subjective inner experience. Subjective doesn't mean fuzzy and fleeting. It just means each person's experience of it is going to be a little bit unique. John says both. He says embrace the evidence but believe and understand the nature of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, but believe in him too. I think this question of the nature of faith is a, is a good one to, to look at because, unfortunately, I believe we turn it too often to figure out other people rather than figure out us. Well, I don't know if they're really a believer because I heard their views about blah, blah, blah. You know, that's none of your business. Is there a heart commitment to Jesus Christ? You know, I've thought this over the years as a covenant pastor in our membership process as people share their testimony either with a church leadership team or a couple leaders. And, 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 and we listen for certain things, you know, pray to prayer at camp, check, you know. If we hear pray to prayer at camp, then we think that they're probably in, right? Grew up a Christian, never was really certain, but now I really love Jesus. That's ah, a little fuzzier. You know, it is not ours to determine the specifics of how, when, But you know who you are, and you know when you have made that choice to put faith in Christ and live a life with him and for him. John says here to embrace, yes, embrace this evidence that I've laid out before you, but belief is something not just about content. It is about a relationship. In fact, when it says believe in him, the word actually means into. It sounds funny in English to say believe into Jesus, but that's exactly what we do. We put us into Jesus, and Jesus puts himself into us. We believe into Jesus. Gary Burge then says, faith then is more a matter of relationship than of creed. Not that the creeds aren't true or that they aren't important, but anybody can recite a creed. But you can't fake a relationship. And that's the life part of this. That in believing in him, you might have life. That by believing, you might have life in his name. Eternal life, certainly. But life now, life now with a sense of purpose and direction to it. Life now with hope. Life now lived in a way that reflects the values and the priorities of Jesus and his kingdom. Life now that is characterized by a profound love and grace. Life now that is characterized by humility that models out of Jesus. By a life lived in service of others rather than in service of self. A life that is lived in the direction of reconciliation with others and in partnering with God for his redemptive purposes in the world. I love that phrase. I heard it a lot this week at the Willow Creek Conference. God's redemptive purposes in the world are always going on and he invites us to join with him. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as it is in earth, so it is in heaven. 
faith for us. But here finally is also this possibility and this hope of faith for the world. This gospel, this chapter, these words look forward to faith for us, but not just us. It's a faith for the world is here. A world that clearly is a world in in deep, deep need. New conflicts in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine. Ugly and horrible reports coming out of Iraq and ethnic cleansing going on. Conflicts between Russia and the Ukraine. Persecution and abuse abounds in different corners of the world. And right here, at home in St. Louis in a very upfront way and yet behind the scenes in other ways, the ugliness of racial strife and injustice that will not go away. Violence in our own big city, Chicago. The world is a less and less safe place to be. Megan and I were talking just the other day. We were walking our dog saying, remember when we were like 10 and we could ride our bike across town to the store? You see a kid who's 10 riding their bike across town, you go, gosh, I hope they're okay. Our world is not as safe as it used to be. Economic disparity grows a gap between the haves and the have-nots. It expands. It leads to fear. It leads to a deepening anxiety about life. And the future for many is in question. There's anger among some in the economic problems that happen. And then the high-profile suicide of Robin Williams reminds us of the silent pain and the torment of depression and related mental illnesses. It is not a bad mood, and it's endured by millions. I could go on, but you get it. You know it's a world in need. Is there hope? Is there hope for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Actually, it is our only hope. (laughs) It is our only hope, a hope, a gospel that looks forward to life, to love, to hope. I had the privilege of being with Megan and Donna Svensson was there also and some others at the Global Leadership Summit that Willow Creek puts on. The Global Leadership Summit lists the the role of leaders up high, but only so that leaders might advance the kingdom of God and be effective in the work that they do. Not only religious leaders, but business leaders as well. I think I was more impressed with some of the business leaders that I heard. But it's that we might effectively lead and we might effectively inculcate the values of the kingdom so that the world is changed. So many people that were said impressive things. I'm always impressed by Bill Hybels, who gives the keynote speech. He says always uh, this phrase, the church is the hope of the world. But as I reviewed my notes, I was especially taken by the words of a businessman, a lay leader named Don Flo. Don Flo owns several car dealerships in North Carolina and Virginia. And all of a sudden, you just made a judgment about car dealerships. But he's an amazing man, an amazing man of faith, who runs this business of 1,100 employees in a way that honors God. Not by pasting Bible verses all over or reading the Christmas story at a Christmas party, but but values of respect for people, values of service to one another, values of humility that he shows, of an openness to, to hear and to learn and work together. He speaks of life, he speaks of hope, and he speaks of love among his employees. And he challenges people, other Christians, then to make that kind of difference. To him, a Christian company is just because he's a believer, God has called him to this. And he lives it out among his employees and in his work. For him, the bottom line is not the success of the auto dealership. Obviously, that's important because it provides livelihood for people. It lifts people up and it gives them a life of quality so that they might learn to serve others and love others as well. This is a gospel that makes a difference in each of our lives, not just on Sunday, not just for those of us who are religious professionals. What a horrible term. 
but those of us who have believed in Jesus, that you might have life, not just so that your life is good and happy and you've got an insurance policy to go to heaven, but that we make a huge difference in how we live our lives, loving others, serving others in the name of God, living out kingdom values rather than trying to prove things and prove others wrong, but a life that serves God. I wrote this stuff, says John, so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that believing in him, you will have life. And that life can bring faith to the world. Is this the end? Verses 30 and 31 sound like the end, don't they? John says, I wrote all this so that you believe. The end. Oops, chapter 21. <laughs> they seem like a, a conclusion, but there's another chapter here. So it led many to believe that chapter 21 is a later edition, sort of a, an appendix. Now, 20 is the conclusion to the evidence and the call to believe, but we will see what a gift chapter 21 is also as we consider following Jesus. Next week, we'll look at that wonderful image of Jesus, uh, the risen Jesus on the beach. While the disciples have gone back to fishing and they come back to the beach and Jesus has breakfast for them. I love that. And then three weeks from today, we'll finish at the very end of John 21 where Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And really his call to Peter is, well, then follow me. And that's really what happens here. That's what we're talking about is follow me. Live a life. Follow me. And then we're going to roll right on into these psalms that take us into some practical ways that we follow him and worship him and honor him. Hard evidence. A heart that believes. I want you, as we finish now, to, um, to put yourself in this story for a moment. Maybe you're stepping back and looking. Maybe you're just sort of a, along the wall, whatever it is. But step back and you have observed this. I want you to consider the evidence. I want you to look at Jesus and listen to what he is saying. Is this just an old Bible story? Or is this the living Lord alive and working his purposes right now? If so, what do you need to do to decide? What do you need to decide? What do you need to affirm? What do you need to do today? Oh, Jesus, Son of God, promised Messiah, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who brings living waters, Jesus, bread of life, Jesus, shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, who forgives sins, who raises the dead, who turns lies around and gives hope. Give us hope today for our own lives and the lives of those we care about. Lord Jesus, bring us fully alive as we trust you and follow you. We look to you, Lord God. We look to you. We see you with eyes of faith the work that you have done and the love and the grace that you give. And we tell you we love you and we believe in you. 
Amen.